All right, good evening. Welcome to, well, this is on, to Duke University Chapel. Um, I'm Luke Powery, the Dean of the Chapel here. On behalf of the entire um, chapel staff, welcome to the great towering church at the center of campus. Um, and tonight we bring an important conversation and topic to the heart of this major research university. And we are grateful that you are here um, a few days before Thanksgiving um, to ask questions, to grapple with uh, this topic. Tonight's topic, this bridge panel conversation is called Revisioning Justice. And our bridge panel series here that we do at least once a semester is a series of public conversations where we connect people from different walks of life um, around shared topics and interests, trying to find shared pathways toward the beloved community of God. So we're really interested in bringing people together that might not always be together at the same table around various topics. So relevant to this evening's conversation, on your way in, you may have noticed that there are portraits hanging on the, the walls of the chapel. Uh, they are photographs of people with family members on death row. This particular exhibit that's in here is called Standing on Love, and it's connected with a sister exhibit, which I encourage you to see, which is at the Rubenstein Art Center, or what they call the Ruby here on campus. And that art series is called Serving Life, which features pieces of art created by people on death row as well as local artists. So these exhibits are all put together in partnership with Duke Chapel, uh, the Rubenstein Arts Center, and the local arts collective Hidden Voices. These two particular artistic exhibits are part of a community art series that frames our conversation tonight. The series overall is called Always Human, Revisioning Justice. And as you might hear, in the title, it is a series that seeks to see and re-see our criminal justice system through the lens of individual people, human beings who are affected by this system. Through this series that we've been um, leading over the last month or so, we aim to cast a critical eye on the current state of the criminal justice system in America and also highlight ways that communities and individuals are seeking, who are seeking both justice and hope. What we're attempting to do is explore how prisons can be places for restraint and repentance that serve the cause of justice, as well as places of mass suffering and confinement that are used as tools of injustice. Within the Christian tradition, you may know that we recognize that prisons have also been the sites from which prophetic and inspired letters have been written by people like the Apostle Paul, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr. and others, also within the Christian tradition, as the shape of this building represents Jesus Christ found himself on crucified lockdown on his own death row. And he said, according to the Gospel of Matthew, I was a prisoner. So tonight, we are honored to have this wonderful group of fun-loving folks together who can help us explore and see our justice system in ways that are critical, in ways that are faithful, and in ways that are hopeful. Um, to my immediate left, we have Dr. Douglas Campbell, who's a professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. His main research interest is the life and theology of the Apostle Paul. And he's also the director of the Certificate in Prison Studies at Duke Divinity School. Next to him, we have Mr. Drew Dahl, who is the Reconciliation and Reentry Coordinator for the Religious Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham. In his role, he organizes faith teams of people from local congregations who meet regularly with inmates recently released from prison to support, listen to, and pray with them. And then on the far, my far left, the Honorable Shamika Reinhardt is a Durham District Court Judge, a graduate of the North Carolina Central School of Law. Judge Reinhardt previously worked as a prosecutor in areas including domestic violence, child support, and property and fraud. In 2016, she was elected to the bench of North Carolina District Court 14. So just a word about, so let's welcome our guests. <laughs> Just so you get a sense of the format, tonight it, it will be interactive. At the beginning, I will ask a few questions to our panelists, um, and then at some point, and I'll let you know, I'll, you will have an opportunity to ask questions. I hope all of you have a card. Um, if you have not gotten a card to write your question on, and, and so at the at a appropriate time, we'll, we'll ask for you to turn in uh, those cards to Bruce Puckett, who's the assistant dean here. All right. The moment we've been waiting for. I know you've been waiting for this. <laughs> so to begin our, our conversation tonight, um, we can go in a lot of different directions, and your questions may take us in some very important directions. But I want to lift this as a way to begin, and anyone can uh, start. So we often hear in the news and other uh, media outlets about instances of injustice, right? whether it's police abuse of power or a prison sentence that seems to be excessively harsh. Um, in some way, or someone who harms other people and goes unpunished. But what about examples of when justice is served? What does it look like 
when justice does happen. So what is justice? That's basically the question. What, what is justice? And what does it look like? I think the judge should go first. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> I think that's a large concept, um, what justice is. Justice can mean a lot of things for a lot of people. And for me, it means community, and it means um, what is right. Um, I was a prosecutor for almost 12 years, and oftentimes justice depends on exactly where you're positioned with respect to the facts of a case, whether you're a person who is alleged to have committed the crime and the person who is the victim. And oftentimes I think justice is pretty much what the victim expected, whether or not they expect the person to in fact be convicted, and what does that look like? And so for me, sometimes I felt like I didn't, justice wasn't served. But in instances where it was, it was oftentimes where there was an expectation from a victim that was in fact met. Um, and I'll give you an example. I can talk about cases wherein they're no longer pending. And so I had a particular case where there was a guy who was charged. There was multiple breaking and entering. He was charged. I had multiple victims. However, the evidence, when I looked at the video, and everyone knows these days that a video, once you have something on video, that's really the state's ace in the hole. And so people want to be able to see that the person is, in fact, on tape committing the crime. However, I couldn't make out the individual's face. I had to call each and every one of those victims and say, listen, I can't make this case. All right. Did they all have expectations that the person that had been charged was going to be held accountable? Yes. Someone broke into their homes. However, the person that was charged, I couldn't prove the case. And so when we talk about what the role of a prosecutor was, what my role was is that there's a special rule called Rule 3.8 of the Rules of Professional Conduct, which basically says that a prosecutor's duty is not merely to convict, but to be a minister of justice. In that particular case, the right thing for me to do was to dismiss the case. And so whether or not the victims got what they deserved with respect to justice, they probably did not. But it was the right thing to do. Another case that I had, I had four individuals, they were students. And guess what they did? They egged the teacher's car on senior day. <laughs> Teachers were irate. And I will say this, the value of egg and car paint, mm. I learned a lot because it did a lot of damage. And so the teachers were irate. These were four individuals, they were young, they were all going to college, and did they need a criminal conviction for doing something as silly as a high school prank? And so what I did as a prosecutor, I got all those individuals together, their parents, the teachers, and guess what? I offered what we call a deferred prosecution, wherein what did the victims want? They wanted the money to pay for the car and the damage. And so guess what? They got recompensed. And I truly believe that was the mercy, because we, didn't, we don't need our young people to have criminal records, but they also, there's an expectation from victims with respect to justice to have what? To be recompensed mm. and to basically have their car repaired. And that's what happened in the case they end up getting dismissed and they end up going to college. And so those are two scenarios where what is justice is kind of like, well, that's pretty easy. But oftentimes, what is justice? It's so subjective with respect to that. And sometimes I think that it's met, and sometimes it's not. And I think it's based with respect to a lot 
of factors with respect to what the victim expects, with respect to whether or not, you know, the state can prove the case, and whether or not exactly what the circumstance of the defendant as well. And I think that all of that is to be considered with respect to what is justice. And I know as a prosecutor, also as a judge, I do humanize justice. I humanize every person that's in front, that appears in front of me, and I ask their attorney, tell me about your client, because it's important that everyone that comes into court, isn't whether they're a victim or whether they've been charged, there's a story versus a statistic. And so that's very important for me. So, uh, I'll make two points. One, justice looks like a community that cares enough to intervene to help someone stop causing harm. And justice also looks like a community that allows people who have done harm to genuinely make amends for the harm they have caused. Uh, so two examples of that. The first one, uh, years ago I was working with a young man named Johnny. and. Uh, Johnny was a good friend of mine. He uh, had just uh, finished doing nine years in prison, had come home, was doing beautifully, and Johnny Clean was a wonderful guy. However, Johnny had a significant substance abuse issue, and Johnny High was not, <laughs> not a wonderful guy. So uh, one Saturday afternoon, Johnny came into my house, scared the fire out of my son, and uh, took a TV. When the prosecutor called me, uh, she didn't know me from Adam. And she said, well, you know what we're going to do is he's a habitual felon, he's offended again, you know, we're going to send him away for 10 or 15 years. I was like, no. Johnny just finished doing nine years. That did nothing for him. What Johnny needs, and Johnny had been in and out of prison his entire life, but Johnny had never had substance abuse, substance abuse treatment in prison. What Johnny needed was intensive substance abuse treatment. So it, we had a great judge, uh, fortunately had a very good ADA, had a uh, good public defender, and we were able to, he had a faith team, we were able to take his entire team to court. We all were able to talk about how we felt about the fact that Johnny had chosen to get high and, you know, come into my house and my son is delayed, so to, you know, create some fear there. Uh, but also talk about how much we love Johnny and wanted him to have a successful life. Johnny was able to talk to us. Uh, we were able to hug it out some. The bailiff would not take the cuffs off so he could really give hugs. Uh, but it was a wonderful experience. And what we ended up with was Johnny getting sentenced to nine months of substance abuse treatment, mm -hmm. which is exactly what he needed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so nine months later, we welcomed Johnny back into community with us, having addressed what was the source of his causing harm. Uh, the second issue is allowing people who have done harm to make amends. Uh, I want to talk about the case of James Barish. Uh, James is a young man who had a weapon in his apartment, uh, was horsing around with it, discharged the weapon and went through the ceiling and hit a young girl. In the normal course of events, James would have gone to prison for a while. Uh, but this is the first case in North Carolina where we were to able, able to have pretrial restorative justice. Uh, the court system was great because one of the reasons a lot of times restorative justice is tough 
is because to have it, you have to be able to talk honestly about what happened. And no one wants to do that because that will be used against you. So the judge in the case made an order that anything that was talked about within the restorative justice process would not be admissible in court. And with that, the restorative justice group was able to sit down and have a conversation with the family, with the girl, with James. He was immensely remorseful. And the repair agreement that came out of that was James going around and having conversations to community groups about the dangers of having a gun mm -hmm. and horsing around with it. Mm -hmm. right. What the family wanted for, was for it not to happen again, not for James to go to prison. So justice looks like the community being able to express what it needs to rectify the harm and our systems responding to that and respecting the desires of the community and the community responding with grace and compassion and holding people accountable for the harm they have caused. I don't have a lot to add to that because I think you guys are right on. Um, <laughs> judge Shamika, um, it's so fascinating to hear a judge say that justice is about individual prudential judgments not about applying rules or laws rigidly. Every situation is unique and you can investigate those and go in and work out what the right thing is to do. Mm -hmm. And Drew talking about relational res restoration, that is a totally different worldview from the worldview that dominates our justice system, mm -hmm. which is that people are individuals and if an individual who's, who's entirely responsible for their actions damages somewhere else, our responsibility is to damage them and that will fix the situation. And you know and I know that that does nothing except double the damage. This is, this is where we've gone horribly, horribly wrong. There is an insight in the damage, but as you said, I think the insight is if someone gets hurt, if they get, some, if they get their kind of life capital taken away from them, we should be restoring that. We should be paying it back. So there's restitution. Why doesn't the state spend all that money on restoring something to people who've been hurt instead of damaging the people who've hurt them. Let's take the 70,000 grand that we spend locking people up a year and put half of that into the people that have actually been hurt and see what happens to America. America. I'm going I'm, I'm to kind of draft a law and send it to... <laughs> well, well, can I just tender something for the conversation also? Mm. You know, oftentimes we have to figure out exactly why people committed the crimes. You know, oftentimes when you have individuals who are in front of me or they want my caseload um, as a prosecutor, I mean, oftentimes we have people who have substance abuse issues and who also have mental health issues. And there is a lot of mental health in the court system. And so what happens oftentimes is when, you know, individual commits a crime, they, they're arrested, you know, they have an evaluation, and oftentimes the cases are dismissed because they don't have the competency to be able to proceed to go to trial. And so, you know, if we invest in mental health resources, which we, we have a strain on resources in this state, you know, we constantly hear about cuts. If we don't, if we continue to, to in my opinion, um, treat substance abuse as a criminal, you know, justice issue, then I don't think necessarily whether or not we're going to continue 
to address the individuals who continue to come in the court system. And oftentimes, I mean, I think that the court system is reacting, you know, and, and as opposed, I think we need to put a lot of funding with respect to being proactive and helping people prior to them even um, coming into the court system. Can I ask you a question that's not one of the ones that I threw out there earlier for you, but um, what is the role of punishment in in the criminal You're just justice winding system? me up now. Yeah. <laughs> Are you asking what the role is or what it should be? <laughs> well, is and what well, should the Florida it Penal is and ought. says yeah. the duty of the judge is to punish. They're not actually given any other instructions, <coughs> which comes from the Latin verb poinere, which means to inflict pain. So we think by inflicting pain on somebody who's done damage, we're somehow balancing out reality. It's one of the dumbest ideas in human history, one of the most deceptive and one of the most destructive. So I would say there's no role for punishment there's only a role for restoration and protection. Mm. I think we owe people a duty to incapacitate people who are dangerous. Uh, we ought to pursue restitution and relational repair. Uh, and we'll be coming to this, won't we? And that whole mm -hmm. process does not center on the dignity of the state, it centers on the dignity of the person who has been damaged. And it comes from them. Uh, and they need to control that process and not have the process taken away from them. As soon as you say the duty of the state is to punish, you take away from the person who's been hurt the very thing they need, which is to be dignified and empowered. So I, I think it's a vicious doctrine. Yeah? Mm. It's, it's not just hard on crime, it's just downright nasty. It, it's expensive too. Right. Yeah. We, we were talking about this mm -hmm. earlier. Is uh, I think it's true that when we have sinned, we want a New Testament God. When someone else has sinned, we want an Old Testament. Old Testament. Damn right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I, you know, yeah, exactly what that's you said. That's the problem. It, yeah. That's the problem yeah. is uh, we want punishment when someone has hurt us. Yeah. But when we've done something wrong, uh, I kept a list. When I was in prison, I kept a list of uh, lessons God was teaching me. And, uh, and one of the first ones was, if I want to be forgiven everything, I have to come to the point that I can forgive everything. Uh, I can't hold grudges and I can't demand punishment unless I'm willing to be held to the same standard. And I think as a society, we need to come to the point of realizing that insisting on punishing people when they have made a mistake uh, and the end just creates a cycle of more punishment. We all make mistakes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Judge, yeah. And I agree. Say. I mean, I certainly, I served in time in prison with people that are never coming home, and that's a good thing. Because there are, there are people who, because of their mental malfunction or because of just kind of how they're wired, mm -hmm. are extraordinarily dangerous and should not come home. However, that is a vanishingly small right. amount of the people that are incarcerated. Yeah. Uh, and, and we could house them in slightly nicer facilities, yes, right. too. Yeah. We spend way too much time punishing people for addiction mm. uh, because they have mental health issues and struggle to make good mm. decisions. I agree with that. Mm.
Judge, do you want to add anything to? So let me let me ask this question. Move to criminal justice reform. Um, there's a number of criminal justice reform measures um, that have been implemented or are being considered. So such as lowering bond amounts, not persecuting or prosecuting misdemeanors referred by schools, and reducing mandatory minimum sentences. So is there a particular, in your, from your perspective, is there a particular reform that you see as the top priority? As the most important first step? I will say this, I don't see with respect to these that are named mm -hmm. a priority, I always prioritize the safety of children. And I will say as a district court judge, I see a lot of young uh, males of color in the court system. Um, and so for me, I think it's important that we begin to work early on those preventative measures before they are in fact introduced into the court system. And so I'm quite sure a lot of you have heard of school to prison to pipeline, mm -hmm. wherein you have, you know, schools that make referrals, wherein um, those individuals uh, which are 15 and below come into the juvenile court system uh, with respect to minor offenses, whether it's a, you know, school fight or some other, you know, cr you know for lack of a better word, crimes where you're a child and you do things. I fought in school. You know, I always wasn't Judge Reinhardt. Um, but I wasn't also charged. I mean, it was a situation where the guidance counselor sat down and talked to me. Um, and so I think that's a, a huge issue because what I see is when they are in fact in the juvenile court system, I also am at the jail. And then I see them with respect to these large, serious felonies like armed robbery, first degree murder. And I am wondering how did we get here? Mm. And I'm always more you know, concerned about prioritizing the prevention, which I don't, I don't think we do a lot of, uh, with respect to even starting in pre-K and getting resources and making, because we have a lot of our children who, once again, they are in trauma. Mm. You know, they hear gunshots, they think it's normal. You know, they, they see individuals that are doing illicit drug activity, they become normalized to that. And then, you know, if mom is working and, and she's not in the home, the next thing you know, that child is going to figure out a way to get what? Some emotional support and connection. And the next thing you know, they're picking up charges. And so it's a huge, it's a huge thing now with respect to, I believe the newly elected DA actually um, is talking about not receiving any um, school referrals, um, which I think is a revolutionary mm -hmm. yeah. idea yeah. because oftentimes, I mean, you know, if you chop off the pipeline, then you won't have individuals come through. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting to see with respect to what, whether or not that happens and whether or not it's implemented. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, even if that was to be implemented, you know, that puts on the school system with respect to these complicated issues. Mm -hmm. of, I mean, I'm talking about serious <laughs> diagnosis, post-traumatic stress syndrome, being bipolar, with respect to, and oftentimes these in, our, our children are coming from disadvantaged neighborhoods where there's also a lack of resources and a lack of support. And so, you know, the question is, and I do agree with you, justice is community and mm -hmm. that mercy and love and compassion, we have to step in because it takes a village to raise a child in some way, I'm telling y'all, they are coming to the court system. And when I see them and they're young and they're small and they're undeveloped and they did something horribly wrong, that is, that is the saddest thing. Mm. And you know, with respect to the bonds, 
how, how the bond pretty typically is. Yeah. And, and then it's just like, and then what happens to them? But they're around individuals who are more mature, you know, more, I guess, what, physically and mentally advanced than them. What does that say? And so I just feel like we have to fight for our children, every child, mm. you know, because if, yeah. you, and I, you know, we have to spend time with them because if not, there's a system that will spend time with them. And that mm. is what we don't want. Thank you. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah uh, there's brain science to back you right up. Some of it's done at Duke um, and in New Zealand. Um, the, the single biggest step that we could take to reduce recidivism would be to stop traumatizing children between the age of zero and five and protect them from having their brain chemistry actually altered. Some of them have uh, vulnerabilities genetically. Mm -hmm. These genes get switched off by trauma, and those folks will do 95% of crime and carry it right through their lifetimes. And you've got a big problem on your hands once you've got folks like that. But all it requires is like really good quality daycare and a bit of child protection. Where you go? I mean, how much would that cost? Not as much as invading Afghanistan, right? Just a suggestion. <laughs> I, uh, I agree. I, I want to look at it from a little different perspective. Okay. I think the biggest challenge we face in our criminal justice system is the disparity of outcomes based on race and income. I embezzled well over a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, no one came to get me to arrest me because I had an attorney, because I could afford an attorney, hmm. who was the former uh, U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina, who was a former Superior Court judge, and so he had made arrangements, and they called him, he called me, we went down to the Justice Center, he talked to the magistrate, and I was released on my own signature. I didn't have to put up a dollar, of, I know, I didn't have to put up a dollar of because I, I wouldn't have done That's that. mercy. No, right. Well, because I walked in with, I could afford a really good attorney, and I walked in, I'm a white guy wearing a $1,000 suit. It makes a difference. When I yeah. went to court, I was not represented by a public defender who has an insane caseload. I had a team of lawyers, one of whom had dated the judge I was in front of in high school. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So my point is not that I didn't want that stuff. I mean, I wanted the mercy and compassion, but everybody ought to have that. Right. We know that use of drugs is pretty well distributed evenly across race and socioeconomic background. Mm -hmm. Yet walk into the courthouse and see who are we pro charging and prosecuting yeah. for use. Mm -hmm. It's primarily poor people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that there's one thing you do to change that because we need to change how we think about society, about what we choose to prosecute and how we choose to uh, deal with substance abuse. Oh, I just came back from Colorado and they just legalized it. So I asked the cab driver, I said, how's that going? He said, well, it didn't really make any difference. Everybody was using it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody noticed a thing. Uh, oh, can I just chip in here with please, another suggestion? Please, Professor. Um, you know, this body of evidence from a, a thing called the Dunedin Longitudinal Study in New Zealand um, came up with the astonishing insight that 90% of teenagers do something that if they're caught would constitute a felony. Mm -hmm. So you've all been teenagers and you know this to be true. 
and I am a teenager and I know this to be true. Okay, so not many of them are caught. <laughs> but here's the thing, they're all gonna do something dumb. If you arm them, when they do something dumb, they go down for the rest of their life. So this is not a smart play, uh, allowing our teen and their stupidity to be weaponized. I'm not talking about gun control, but I am talking about gun safety. I really think that is a huge part of the problem that we face. Yeah. How do these, the criminal justice reforms um, seem to be focused on avoiding unfair sentences, you know, for people who are convicted or providing better resources for, for those in prison, but where do the people who have been harmed by crimes fit into this? Where do they fit into these reforms? Well, as a prosecutor, I will say this, and I, I feel like I'm pretty good with victims, um, i.e., I build relations with victims. I, I called all my victims that I had contact information for because it was very important for me for them to know. Um, I think oftentimes with respect to a lot of the justice reform, and it's, and it's great, you know, it's great to, to focus on those who have been accused of crimes for that restoration part, but there's also restoration of the victim. Because yeah. oftentimes they are wondering like, uh, what's going on? You know, they don't know about the court system. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of them do not. And it's interesting because we, we just voted on a constitutional amendment wherein they have a constitutional right as victims which, you know, it's interesting. They had a statutory right before to be notified with respect to plea offers, with respect to sentencing hearings and all of that. But still in my day-to-day -day contact, they still didn't know. And they need a, a prosecutor to explain the process. And oftentimes, if you talk to a, a victim, and let's just say, you know, for a young person, and, they, and a young person might have broken into their home, no record. If you build a relationship, you say, you know what, you know, he's, you know, he got a little trouble, but, you know, you know. Can we, you know, do you mind if we offer deferred or, you know, offer some type of plea where in what's your expectations and you call them again if you build that relationship. And oftentimes, you know, with a little bit of time, not a whole lot, because in district court cases are dealt with, which spend 120 days oftentimes, mm -hmm. um, you can then bring them in the process and try and first of all, try to empower them and say that, first of all, you know, you're working on their behalf, but you're also including them in the sense of justice informing, you know, through their expectations, what they can expect. Um, and I felt like when I did that, I had better results with, you know, and then of course, you know, I talked to the defense attorney and said, well, tell me about your client. Then I would take it back and say, well, I think this is what we can reasonably expect for him to be able to perform, because I didn't want to set people up for failure as well. Now you can load all these conditions up and have, you know, and, I'm, and all this payment and cost, but if they can't pay you to know somebody who already is, is strapped for resources, then, you know, yeah. Yeah. that probably doesn't really matter to the victim. What matters is they have, you know, something was damaged, they want to be paid. And so I, you know, and so I think with respect to the victims, I think oftentimes as a prosecutor, you have to talk to them. You have to involve them in the process. Um, and I think what the Restorative Justice Project is doing is just revolutionary. Mm. Wherein I think oftentimes victims feel in, they don't feel empowered. And I think with that, with respect to that process, oftentimes what's the main question the victims want to know? Why did you choose right. my house? Right. Why did you choose to bother me when I was just coming home from from studying? Mm. And so oftentimes, I'll be honest with you, 
in the in the justice system, I can't answer the why for a victim. You know, I can just hopefully meet the expectations and, and you know, hold that person accountable. But in the restorative justice, where you're sitting down and talking, it's a totally different and revolutionary way of crafting what justice looks like. And oftentimes, I mean, I agree with you where we're just like, okay, then we want to be punished. You know, what can we get? I want to go to jail. I want probation. But when you revolutionize and think different, it can just blow your mind because I agree with you. You know, we want a, a New Testament. Well, we want a New Testament God, but we, we want an Old Testament, <laughs> you know, God when it comes to someone else who's harmed us. I mean, I think, but victims do have a role. Yeah. They do have a role mm -hmm. in this, this sense of justice, and they cannot, you know, not be included because they have rights as well, just as the rights of the defendants. And so I think yeah. that more communication and more demystifying this process I think that oftentimes we don't control the narrative of what this is that we're doing and we let everybody else tell the story about what's happening versus us control the narrative. I think that we can better get some better outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I have a little bit of a problem with the question. Uh, mm -hmm. None of us are the worst thing or the best thing we've ever done. I agree. And so kind of setting up this dichotomy where we mm -hmm. have these roles assigned of either yeah. perpetrator or victim. I gotcha. Uh, you know, it's it's always more complicated than that. Uh, let me tell you about my friend Dewan. Uh, Dewan's mom had a huge substance abuse issue. When Dewan was 12 years old, his mom disappeared. No family picked up Dewan. Social services did not pick up Dewan. And so, from the time he was 12 year old, 12 years old, Dewan lived on the street. He either slept in the woods. He slept in abandoned houses. He made do the best he could. When Dewan was 17, he had his first interaction with the legal system. He was arrested in Walmart because he was trading dirty clothes for clean clothes for his three and four year old half brother and half sister. And our response as a community was to lock him up. Mm. We did not look and say, you are 17 years old. You are a child who has been abandoned for over five years. And we as a community have failed you in our basic duty to protect children. So our solution to this is to call you a criminal and lock you up. You know, who's the victim and who's the offender? It's complicated. It's complicated. Um, also, one of the things we see in the coalition is we treat harm as an offense against the state. Right. And because we do that, because we have professionalized the administration of justice, many times victims find themselves as observers to the process yeah. and feel extraordinarily disconnected from the entire system. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I love restorative justice is we ask a series of questions. We start with who was harmed? What was the harm? Yeah. What were you thinking about in the lead up to the harm and in the process of committing it? What was the context mm -hmm. of that harm? Yeah. What have you been thinking about since the harm occurred? And then how do we repair the harm? Mm -hmm. 
And in that process, we hear from everybody. We hear from the victim, the person who was harmed. We hear from the person who committed the harm. And as community, we have the opportunity to determine how do we make this as right as we can make it. Yeah. Um, you guys know all about this. I'm, I'm a bit of a theorist when it comes to this. But um, New Zealand does a lot of restorative justice. And if you've really been hurt by someone, if you've been damaged, you need to be healed. And the most profound thing that can happen to make you move towards healing is when you tell your story in a safe space directly to the face of the person who has hurt you. And when you see in their eyes and their face that they are feeling your pain. And then that is a profoundly empowering and healing moment when you feel heard, the damage that has been done by the person who has damaged me. Uh, that's a healing moment just there in and of itself. And it's the ultimate learning experience for the person who has done the damage. Because you're sitting there, so much damage is stupid. We're just not aware of our consequences. And you are face to face with the consequences of your foolish and painful actions. So you learn and the victim is healed. So I think restorative justice is a huge opportunity for us to bring a lot of repair and healing. Yay. And now we have a constitutional reason for demanding it. I'm very excited about this. Um, do you think the framers of that amendment knew what they were unleashing? Well, you know, I will... We can define this conversation. <laughs> I will remain mum on that with respect, but I mean... You know, it's more victims' rights, and so, you know, we have to make sure that they're, you know, they're protected. Absolutely. So I to, you know, abide by the law, but. Can a victim, part of a victim's right is surely the opportunity to have a conference in a safe space where they confront the person that's hurt them yeah. and get opened up. I don't know if that's up. one of them, but I certainly know that I, it's with respect to a like a right. heard. Yeah, yeah. And so I think oftentimes, I think you were right spot on where, and, you know, and sometimes, you know, I mean, people who have been harmed mm -hmm. are really intimidated, uh, you know, by the process. You've got to be careful. And so, and so you, know, careful. you know, you don't want, yeah. if they yeah. want to, you know, for instance, I have individuals who've been harmed, you know, appear in front of me and I always ask, do you want to be heard? And sometimes they don't. Yeah. And that's something which I respect. Um, Absolutely. No, you have to do that. Yeah. But I think uh, the restorative justice, you know, process, mm -hmm. if, you know, that is something where it can happen and it's mm -hmm. very, um, mm -hmm helpful and empowering for the person who's been harmed. I mean, I think that's something that, you know, I don't think they can necessarily get that in the court system. Right. It can take years to you reach know, the point where you're ready to face someone. Oftentimes there's not wanting to be that type of, you know, because, they, you know, oftentimes those who have been harmed, you know, they're brought in through no harm or, their, you know, or wrongdoing of their own. And they're like, mm. you know, you want me to talk to who? Mm. And so, mm. you know, you have to have some understanding of redemption to even participate i believe right, in right. in that type mm -hmm. of process and mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. everyone you know might not want to do that no, i think that's right. true and yeah. so you know right. and if yeah. that's the case then you know for the opportunity to be heard as a prosecutor as a judge i then have to be that person in yeah. which they express that yeah. to. Yeah. Um, but once again i can't give you the why why'd you pick my home why'd you pick my car why'd you mm -hmm. you know try to take my purse you know they're not going to, I don't think they're going to get that through the court system. 
as they could the restorative justice. Have, have you seen um, the way the court system re-victimizes victims, though? Well, you know, I, I will say this. There is some argument. I used to be the DV prosecutor. Mm. Um, and domestic violence is a whole nother unfortunate um, beast in of itself. And, you know, oftentimes um, the prosecution does require the person, and I'll just say woman because oftentimes it is a woman who has been harmed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes because of her love, her connection, mm. her support that she receives from that person who has harmed her, Oftentimes, she doesn't want to come to court. And also, she might be scared because, you know, she needs to, you know, maintain her livelihood, which is mainly, you know, from the person who's harmed her. And oftentimes, you know, she yeah. might not come to court. And if she served, then, you know, the state can ask for her to be show called, to come back into court, to be able to explain, well, why didn't you come to court? And you just like, and, and it's a hard, you know, thing to prosecute because, you know, you oftentimes understand, and so I do think that's one instance where in, you know, you know, oftentimes a case is dismissed because you can't prosecute, and so you bring her back in to, to say, well, why didn't you come to court? And, you know, some people can see that as being a revictimization of it, but still it doesn't get to the root of the relationship and why there's violence between the two. Right. And so that's not, you know, that's not, I guess, handled because the case ends up being dismissed. So. Thank you. I'm going to ask Bruce if he would start making his way around the room to collect your cards. If you have questions on your cards, we're going to start collecting those. As I ask um, one other question here, um, there's a question that I want to ask. Here we are in a church building. <laughs> That's what it is. And, um, and so I've, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts in, in terms of where does the church, or even more broadly, religious communities fit in efforts for a more just society? Or where, does, where do religious communities sometimes get in the way of a more just society? I will say, I'm sorry, I took the question. Like, I, I think that the religious community has a huge, you know, uh, I would say, I guess, responsibility to those who need to be restored. I mean, oftentimes we see individuals who, for whatever reason, they're struggling financially where they, they feel like they can't feed their family. And, I mean, churches had food pantries where people can go and get the resources so that that need is, is pretty much, you know, fulfilled. I think it would, I would, think it would help. I also think that, you know, oftentimes when you have someone, I'll be honest, you have someone that you're like, you know what, he's a good person. You know what, you go to, you go to court with that person and you say, well, my, rev my reverend is back here. You're like, okay, and, you know, oftentimes I'm going to hear from the reverend. Well, yes, sir. Mm -hmm. If you want to say, well, you know what, let me tell you about this individual, you know, so-and-so and so and and, and just, and once again, it's humanizing. So I don't think we do enough of that in the court system wherein you have people that, you know what, I got my whole family. And you know, oftentimes I look up and there's nobody, nobody standing and supporting, you know, those who have been, you know, charged with support. And so I think it makes a great difference, um, I think. Should make a difference. And it should make a difference. Also, and also, you know, you know, go into the restorative justice piece. Mm. You yeah. know, learn and have, you know, if you have a church, have church members go and do training and say, you know, we'll sit in circle. 
yep. and we'll talk yep. and we'll and, and you know because it's I think it, it's a great opportunity to do God's mm -hmm. work and to spread that mercy you know and it should come from the church as opposed to every time you know go out in the community that's what Jesus did there's there's a cross up behind us on the altar that's empty and what that's saying is at the very center of the Christian faith is God dying and then being resurrected to solve the problems of the cosmos and everybody who comes in here who's pious celebrates that at least once a week says that they think it's true but almost everything that we do in response to criminal behavior falsifies that statement we outsource problem solving to secular structures indicating with every outsourcing move we don't really believe it I mean if this really is the solution to the problems of the cosmos that should be something at the very center of what we do and what we say and it is a reconciling act yeah well we're created to be in community absolutely and uh, and and the work of the faith community mm -hmm. is to be in community both with people who have caused harm as mm -hmm. they come back and creating community for them and also for people who have been harmed uh, if you if you're sitting through a murder trial it is a long emotionally wrenching experience mm -hmm. and having people who will come and sit with you mm. as you have to sit and listen to that testimony uh, just being present uh, it is uh, so yeah yeah uh, we have to bring the prodigal son back into the church and we have to bring the good Samaritan back into the church we have the victim and we have the stupid offender <laughs> both of them have to be brought back in mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no excuses then. And the older son, who I always felt like. Yeah, I don't, don't like leave the elder out. I don't like the elder son. <laughs> he's like he's he's a kind of a he's a he's a he's a rule governed. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sure. Can so you hear us now? It may there be good go. there a little bit further. Away. We have several questions here, maybe more that are formulating on your cart. How many? Do you have cards with questions on it, Bruce? Can you, those that are, have theirs, we'll take some more. Now, there's no guarantee that we will get through all of these questions, but the panelists may stick around a little bit afterwards <laughs> for further conversation. Um, and so let me do my best in reading your handwriting. Okay, here's one question to get us started. Is incarceration ever just? What are our best alternatives for the most violent offenders? I, I think we do incarcerate people who are dangerous to incapacitate. Um, but we don't have to incarcerate to incapacitate. There are technologies and ways of acting now that don't necessarily have to confine people. But I think we have a duty to protect third parties. But that's a much, much more limited duty right. 
than the duty to inflict pain upon everybody who's done something wrong. I mean, we're, we're talking about a much, much smaller population. Yeah. Right, yeah. There are people who... Sadly. Uh, sadly, but yes, sadly, there are people yeah. who need to be isolated from society. Yeah. But that is a vanishingly small number. It's very small. Uh, mm. But I also think it's important, once again, to, to get to the root cause as to mm. why they committed the crime. And if it's mental illness, I mean, certainly I don't think it's just to have those who are mentally ill within the court system because they're, you know, they're limited resources or within prison, expect medication and all of that. Um, there are certain individuals who are dangerous, who have committed very heinous offenses, but there's also individuals who, you know, if they're an addict and it's a simple, you know, or a simple felonious possession of cocaine or, you know, marijuana, then there are other ways, I think, that we can get to that particular reason why the person continues to come in the court system. That becomes a little bit more difficult when you have um, crimes that are committed due to the fact that them supporting a habit, wherein they're breaking in people's homes. You know, it, it complicates um, um, that, I think, with respect to that. But, mm -hmm. um, do you think? I mean, there's certainly... Yeah. Well, right. Uh, <laughs> I interview, so all of our partners coming in, we do an intake because of course we do. Mm -hmm. uh, and I always get to the point of just tell me about what happened last That's time. A good yeah, well, mm -hmm. how, how did you get to the point where you're coming home from prison? And, uh, and as part of that discussion, we always get to the why. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of the time, the answer is, I was high. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it's, you know, if we could address the root cause which is substance abuse, uh, we would fix a lot of the crime. And locking people up without treatment, uh, one, doesn't stop them from getting high because drugs are just as available in prison as they are on oh, the street. Yeah. Uh, so we haven't fixed the getting high, and without some kind of successful treatment, all we've done is house somebody for months or years, and they're going to come back and continue to do the same thing. Uh, it doesn't have a very good track record. It has a horrible well, track record. It doesn't actually. Well, when you, Usually it doesn't fix things. They yeah. need treatment. Yeah. All right. times outpatient. And you have a lot of individuals who don't have the money right. to, to be able to afford the treatment. And so what happens? Yeah. So it's like a really smart plan. You've got someone who's a problem to society, maybe has a violent tendency, lack of self-control. So the way you deal with that is you lock them up with 300 other people who have violent tendencies and lack self-control and do it for a long time, put a lot of pressure on them with correctional officers, and when they come out, they'll be fixed, right? It, yeah. is, it is interesting because uh, <laughs> you, you have a lot of conversations in prison, and one thing that I found very consistent is the lack of impulse control or emotional self-regulation mm. was pretty much constant among everybody. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing about the prison experience that helps you learn emotional self-regulation or impulse control. <laughs> we, we teach people to do the right thing as a rule by asking them to copy people who do the right thing. Yeah. This is how we learn to do things. Because we're imitative, right? Yeah. We, we copy mm -hmm. the people who are around us. Mm -hmm. so, so this is not a smart plan to put all our people with problems together so they can copy one another. And get, it's, I mean, I, it's just not thought through. That's the thought behind, <laughs> uh, many times, that's the thought behind faith teams. Right. is right. We, we ask people to come in a relationship with other people so that I have people to talk to and people I can look at and say, well, how do they solve problems? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, right, right, mm -hmm. exactly. 
Here's another question. What does justice look like for those who were wrongly convicted mm. and innocently punished? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. A whole lot of money. Yeah. 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 A lot of money lost and, well, for the taxpayers and a lot of liberty. You know, oftentimes for, you know, when people are wrongly convicted, you hear what the state gave them. And I'm like, life is worth a lot more. <laughs> with 1.2 million, I was like, you missed a lot of yeah. good years, like from like early 20s up to 52 or 40 something. I'm like, so I don't. It's it's it's, it's not just innocent. It's right? It's not just people who haven't done something. It's people who, for various reasons, have adopted a plea bargain that has put them inside for 15 years longer than they actually needed to do. That's a tricky one. No, it is. Mm. It is. I'm a convicted guy. How it's connected to this the same? How how should citizens hold the criminal justice system or the actors, the system accountable without question. being accused yeah. of being against the police or law enforcement? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I think it's important not to be too aggressive, to be honest, because these are really, really difficult jobs. I think the police have a horrifically difficult job and they're very badly paid. Um, correctional officers have an awful job. Toughest job in the world is to be a correctional officer. Uh, it really is. So I think to be constructive, uh, we need to be engaged and responsible and supportive, not right. just. Uh, I think the first step is actually knowing something about the criminal justice yeah, system. Right. Uh, how many of you have gone and sat in district court? Mm. Mm. I mean, they're, you know, okay, so more than probably a normal <laughs> group. No, no, this is a bad group, Dad. That's pretty, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, but, but, yeah, I think you need to be present. You need to go sit in court and see what happens. And I will say this, I can't believe I'm saying this, but if you feel like um, a judge is not just, then guess what? We're elected. Yeah. And you know what? The way you keep, you know, us accountable is if we don't, you know, treat people right and we don't follow the law and we don't have, you know, mercy and understand some of the things we're talking about today and t this evening, mm. then guess what? You can vote us out. Well, I think we should do that. And yeah. We've got to get away but, but from... I, but I think... I don't mean you. But I, but I, I don't mean you. But I, but I think, right, yeah. Actually, you know, actually. You know, no, but I mean, I'm being honest because the thing about it is, I mean, it's, it's holding us yeah. accountable. Yeah. Um, but I also want people to understand that we have very difficult jobs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it's hard <laughs> with respect to this justice and what this looks like because, unfortunately, you know, people are still violating the law and, and people are still going to prison and, and being incarcerated. And, you know, how does this justice and mercy, you know, what does that look like? Mm. And oftentimes you have to understand what a judge can do and what a judge can't do. There's things that I can do, and there's things I can't do, and there's discretion. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how do I use that discretion? Um, we haven't even talked about poverty. Mm -hmm. We haven't hit on the fact that most of the people in the court system that come in there are impoverished. And if I talk about how many court costs and fees are associated, it will blow your mind. And most of them can't pay it. And if you want to talk about like police accountability, we have PAC councils throughout the city where you can you know, get up on a Saturday morning and go to your local community and meet with uh, police officers. Yeah. 
But we've got to stop falling for this tough-on-crime line. Mm. When politicians stand up and say, I'm going to be hard on crime, uh, you know, that's kind of bogus. So what should we say? Are you going to be merciful? No, you vote them out as soon as they start posturing like a butch person. It's like, yeah, no, you're going to cost me a lot of money. What you're talking about is bullying. And what you're proposing isn't going to work. So that's like a bad political platform, isn't it? But, but we kind of fall for this line a lot. There's a, there's a metaphor in play here that we have to kind of uh, defuse. I actually don't know how to do it. We were talking about it before, but people who are punitive are hard on crime. They're straight. They're upright. They're kind of men, right? And the people who oppose them are soft and wobbly and lenient. This is how we frame the debate, isn't it? But what is God? Soft and wobbly and lenient? But that's where God is on the side of the debate. So we really need to rethink our metaphors here. I'm open to suggestions, by the way, on that one. Yeah? I don't have any suggestions. There's several questions here about around um, restorative justice um, and the role of the community. So let me try to throw several of these out together there. And so one question is, and then I'll, I'll, I'll raise some of these others because uh, I think they're in the same family, it says, how do you get, this isn't a, uh, a partisan issue, right? This topic that we're talking about tonight. How, how do you get buy-in on the, this type of reform from a wide range of groups, right? So across lines, whatever that may be. So that's one. Then there's another question about how we can better set up the broader community in feeling comfortable welcoming, now it's the restore, welcoming back folks that have been in prison, right? So the restorative, how do you get the community on board um, in some ways, a broad um, spectrum of the community. Then there's a question overall here um, about restorative justice itself. So let me, one is um, the views on restorative justice and getting rid of punishment altogether seem oddly optimistic. Would you make the same claims in more extreme scenarios of mass murderers and rapists? That's a doozy. And then this is, and here's another one linked to restorative justice uh, and its method. Is restorative justice necessarily voluntary? And if so, yeah. is the integrity of the restorative justice method reliant on the existence of a less just system of criminal apprehension? What is the long-term goal of restorative justice and how does the voluntary element factor into that long-term goal? So have at it. There's several questions. Uh, I'll talk about getting community involved in uh, restorative justice for people coming home from prison. Uh, 
That's, that's actually remarkably easy. Give me a call. Uh, we, are, we are always looking for faith communities to create more teams. One of the interesting things is as we prepare a team for working with someone coming home from prison, uh, generally there's a lot of anxiety up front is, oh, we're going to meet a criminal. Uh, and then you meet the person coming home from prison and you realize they are just a human being. They are a human being who made a mistake that we choose to prosecute and has spent some time uh, incarcerated. Mm. But they have hopes and aspirations and dreams just like you do. Uh, they have ideas that are insanely wrong about how the world works just like you do. Uh, that they're just people. And yeah, they're people that made a very significant mistake generally. Uh, but at their heart, they're just another human being. It's, we, we learn to be in community by being in community. I'm not sure there's anything more complicated than that. It's really funny because uh, about four or five months in uh, to all of our circles, uh, we have the partner will invariably ask, why are you doing this? Yeah. They're getting paid. No, they're all volunteers. They're not getting paid. They're getting an award at church. No, they're not getting an award at church. Now, why are they doing this? Because they love you. Why do they love me? Because you deserve to be loved. Why do I deserve to be loved? And that becomes the heart of the issue, is we all deserve to be loved. And if we believe that as an, act as an actionable part of our lives, rather than a theoretical part of our lives, then we really have no choice other than to walk with those who have been in prison, who have been sick, who are mentally ill, who are the other. It, and just adding very quickly to that, I, I think that's profoundly important. And um, these people are loved by particular people, they have family, they have parents, sisters and brothers, sons and daughters, and they have been separated from these people. And, and those relationships need to be restored. People need to be given back to their friends. When someone does time, the whole family does time. Yes, that's true. The whole family gets put under pressure and broken and strained and stressed and marriages come apart parenting issues arise. So those relationships have to be restored if we're going to move forward. Um, as for crossing the uh, building bridges across the aisle, it's a really, really simple way of getting that done. It saves you a ton of money doing this stuff. Yeah. Punitive politics is expensive politics. You've got to build huge facilities, staff them, they're high control facilities. Um, they're incredibly expensive to run. Short of justice, it's, well, true. I mean, we don't even pay you for it, do we? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything to add. Okay. Well, Wanda, I want to talk about the extreme one. You oh, yeah, go ahead, yeah. yeah. Uh, did you want to? No, go ahead. Um, yeah, the, the grandfather of restorative justice, Howard Zier, used to argue that the more extreme the damage, the more important the restorative justice process is. Uh, it's very difficult for a nation to move forward uh, from genocidal experiences without some form of restorative justice 
which patches together the relationships that have been so severely torn. A uh, nice example of this is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Spent five years processing the damage, the trauma that had been done. Now, it wasn't perfect, but my, 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 it brought a lot of healing to a lot of victims who had their stories heard. Uh, Rwanda has just finished a massive, decade-long process of restorative justice, where every victim who wanted to come forward and have their story heard was able to confront the people that had done things to them. Sierra Leone has just gone through this process as well. It's a profoundly healing process, particularly in the case of genocide, but it's never compulsory. It's always voluntary, uh, which means the state needs to contract independent actors, cannot take over this process and, and force it upon people. That will, that will suck out the integrity of it. So. Yeah, one of the problems with that, though, is that if you have had any experience with our criminal justice system, uh, you realize that the last thing you want to do is be honest and open oh, yeah. about yeah, what you did. Right. Because the system that would be punishes you for being honest. Right. Uh, there's, no, there's no upside to saying, yes, I did it, and this is what happened, uh, because it will be used against you. There's no truth-telling. Right. Right. No yeah, truth telling, it's, you know, uh, which is central to healing. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, you know, for healing to take place, you begin you by owning what You must have the truth. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So there's a huge opportunity for you here in the nonprofit sector, Drew. I'm excited about this. Yeah. yeah. Good man. There are two more questions that I, I think would lift, and then we'll hear if you have a final word for us. <laughs> just one or two. This evening, just one or two words. <laughs> but there are two, two questions. One, that there are two here, and then I'll, I'll leave it in your hands. Um, one is about the children. How can we prepare our education system to respond in ways that truly help children? Mm. That's a very good question. First of all, I think we have to, to listen to children, and I think that we have to I mean, I, I say it again, we, it takes a village to raise a child. And, you know, with respect to when they're in school, um, with respect to the educational system, we, we certainly need more funding as it relates, you know, with respect to pre-K, with respect to getting the resources early. Um, also, I think with respect to the school-to-prison pipeline, making sure that we don't, you know, push them out into the court system. Yeah. Because, you know, I'll be honest with you, I mean, from what I under my understanding is 3% of the total state budget funds the court system. And so you're also putting them in a system that is strapped for resources. And oftentimes, I mean, I can't tell you when I have juveniles who are in front of me and I want them to get services, they have to be waitlisted because it's a waitlist and there is a scarcity of resources. And so, I mean, I think that if we have our children who have those issues with respect to whether it's substance abuse, we need to make sure that the agencies have enough staff, have enough individuals to be able to attend to their needs. And that's just a utopian way of, of trying to address the issue. But I mean, I think we also need to, to, to all hands on deck. Mm. I mean, quite frankly, um, I think that with respect to our school system, uh, once again, I go back to the good old school fight, you know, restorative justice is in the schools we're in. They sit in circle. They're learning how community mm. cares. Yeah early because we're, you know, standing in the gap, yeah. you know, just because you're not my child, you are my child. 
because I'm going to go in where you are, and I want to do restorative justice, and I'm going to do other programs, and I'm going to show you that I care. You know, every time, you know, and that's why, as a judge, I go out in the community. I go to, you know, fairs. I talk to the children because I want them to see me where they are, not necessarily for them to see me where I work. And so I think there's a difference because, you know, if they see me, they will say, oh, my gosh, mm -hmm. there's a black judge. If she can do it, perhaps I can. You never know what a positive image mm -hmm. will do to a child. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. that's what I try to do. Yeah, amen. What, here's, here's one um, last one question and then for your final word. What would you do to fix the justice system and why? <laughs> We don't what have would you time. do? <laughs> I will say this. I think important. I will say is one thing. I think it's very important that we, everyone who works in the court system, have race equity training. Yeah. And understanding how race um, is impacted within the court system, and I think that oftentimes, you know, people say, "Well, I'm not racist," but I mean, you know, you got to understand how race impacts. And if you're looking through your own lenses of privilege, and it's going to be totally different than a person of color who's looking through their experiences through oppression. And so the eye vision is not matching up. And so I think it's very important that when I see a prosecutor's office sending individuals to race equity training, that is, that's, that's huge. Because, you know, the prosecutor, in my opinion, is the most powerful person in the courtroom. They can dismiss charges. They can understand with respect to when that sense of fairness and justice has been violated. They can dismiss the case. I can't do that. And so we have to make sure that our prosecutors also understand it's not necessarily always about convicting, mm -hmm. but also about mercy and also perhaps about giving someone a chance and seeing someone as a person, not necessarily a statistic. Mm -hmm. And so I think race equity training and good race equity training, because there's some that you're like, okay, we're just doing it. No, no, no. You got to start the hard work, starting with the man and woman in the mirror first and say, how am I going to practice this learning um, for a more just system. And I think that all judicial actors, judges, you know, magistrates, sister public defenders, I think we all need to do that in our court system. And that's just, that's just a start. It's just a start. Oh, uh, I think we need to get rid of mandatory minimums and restore discretion to the bench so that people like yourself can make good judgments about individual cases on the basis of mitigating circumstances. And uh, I think we need to mandate rather diversionary programs. So again, New Zealand has come up from time to time, but uh, New Zealand instituted a mandatory diversion program, if at all possible, for youth who'd committed offenses in 1989, the Child and Young Persons Family Act. They said, if it is at all possible, you will not send this kid to jail, to prison. Uh, it resulted in an 84% drop mm. in youth incarceration. 84%. Think of 84% of our incarcerated kids out of Polk, yeah. but in diversionary programs. Yeah. yeah, so it can be done. Yeah, if we can do it. Little old New Zealand, you can do it. <laughs> I would say... Uh, Stop criminalizing addiction. Yeah, mm -hmm. we uh, we treat addiction as a criminal behavior, and the problem behind that is, if we send someone away, when they come back, because of our war on drugs, 
they cannot get food stamps. They cannot get supp supplemental nutrition. Mm. They're not eligible for Section 8 housing. Uh, they, they do not have access to federal dollars for training. So I'm sent to prison as a youth. I come back home, I want to be able to eat and have a place to stay and learn a trade. And I cannot do any of that because I am prevented because I have a criminal conviction for drugs, which is a, my substance abuse is a medical issue. Uh, mm. Stop punishing people for being sick. Well, the time has come for your final word or few words. What would you want us to take away tonight, and each of you, for the last word that you have for this evening? What would you want us to remember, know, believe, trust, hold on to, rethink, whatever? Durham is a city that is having a lot of these conversations about re-envisioning justice. I will say that uh, we have a lot of, of programs wherein, I don't know if you've heard of the Misdemeanor Diversion Program, which is a program which was started by uh, Representative Moray when we saw a lot of the mm -hmm. 16 and 17 year olds being charged as adults um, because we were one of the last two states to raise the age of juvenile justice. And so what happens is when our children come in contact with an officer at the schools, they're referring that particular case into that particular program and guess what they comply with the program is dismissed like it's just really true second chance with respect to the restorative justice I mean we were the first county to do um, the case in which um, Drew was talking about which was revolutionary with respect to how we are re-envisioning what justice is and I think it's going you know to take some time to shift with respect to the punitive narrative with respect to a narrative of restoration that involves both uh, individuals on the sides of that harm. Um, Durham is really great. Um, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and I just, if you could take one thing away from this and, and, and say, well, how can I, what can I individually do to help um, recreate and re-envision this justice? And if you're here tonight, the day before, like two days before Thanksgiving, I mean, you're certainly someone who has an interest in respect to what our community will look like as it relates to these issues. Um, well, I want to thank my two panelists because I've, I've learned a lot from you. You learned a lot and from I think And yeah. I think your people are profound integrity and courage. And you're doing wonderful work. Um, you know, this is a tough one. It is a battle. It is hard. It's big. And there's kind of a, an evil side to it. It's, it's easy to get discouraged. But the tide is turning. We are having these conversations. There is a national conversation. We're going to win this. Yeah, that's it. Keep fighting. Uh, there's no we or they. There is only us. Someone who's a perpetrator today can be a victim tomorrow. Somebody who's a victim today can be a perpetrator tomorrow. If we are going to create the beloved community, we have to learn how to heal the harm that we cause each other. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. Well said.
Can we thank all of our panelists for their engagement? Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you for coming, and I want to leave you with these words as you leave from the prisoner, Apostle Paul, from his letter to the Philippians. And this is my prayer, he says, that your love may overflow more and more. Words from a prisoner. Go out in the love of God and serve the world, remembering that we all are human. So God bless you. Take care.